Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune with a new guest on the channel, Chris Irons from his podcast and, uh, well, research firm, uh, Quote the Raven Research, as well as G1 Vesting. Um, Chris, if you haven't seen him around here on YouTube, he has a podcast by the same, same name, uh, Quote the Raven. He's got a YouTube channel as well. Um, and I think uh, the rest of the introduction, I'll just leave up to him. Um, Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, you bringing me on. Yeah, absolutely. Taking the chance to be one of the one of the few that takes the chance to bring me on. And hope <laughs> well, that I just don't blow up and go crazy on their show. Right. This is a trial <laughs> run. There's a reason I didn't go live with this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about you uh, tell tell my viewers a little bit about your uh, about yourself? You know, uh, I think you're you're well known in some circles, but maybe precious metals or some of the things I focus on. Some of them might not have heard about you. So maybe some some background on on kind of where you got started. Yeah, sure. As a matter of fact, I don't think anybody has asked me for my background before. All the podcast stuff that I do, uh, I don't <laughs> think anybody's ever asked me that question. So this, uh, this might actually be the first time that I'm, uh, that I'm explaining it. So um, my experience with the markets goes back to when I was, so I'm 35 now, goes back to when I was 18 years old. Um, and my very very first experience dealing with the stock market was I got some money from my high school graduation party and I walked into my local AG Edwards branch because that was a thing back then. It was before E-Trade and everything else for the online brokerages um, and plunked down $1,700 in cash on the secretary's desk and <laughs> told her I wanted to <laughs> told her I wanted to invest it in, in Apple. This was in 2001. Okay. And, uh, you know, I went in there with like multicolored bleach blonde hair. I was like a little punk rocker in high school. <laughs> and, uh, she gave me kind of a funny look and said, you know, well, do you have an account? I said, no. And I said, well, you have to open an account. You have to talk to a broker. You can't come in here in cash. You got to bring a check in. And I'm like, oh, all right. <laughs> and thus began my, uh, journey, I guess, to starting to figure out how the stock market works. Um, that was the first probably in a very long line of learning experiences that I've had. And uh, from there, what I did was I went to the bank. I got a check. I went back to AG Edwards, and I opened up an account in my name, and I sat down in front of a broker who looked exactly like you would expect a broker at AG Edwards in New Jersey to look like, you know, slick back hair, the fucking jewelry, the suit, the whole thing you know, working out of a shopping mall, right? Working out of this small branch mm -hmm. in like a shopping mall. And I said to this guy, hey, you know, look, I don't know shit about shit, but uh, I've been an Apple fan my whole life. I, you know, helped build my first Apple IIe when I was in fifth grade. I know the company's not doing great right now, but Steve Jobs had just come back and I was an eternal optimist. Didn't know anything about valuation or didn't really even know what stock was but told him, hey, I want to buy stock in Apple. And he looked me in the eye and he said, no, you don't. And I said, oh, okay. He said, 
you know, what you want to do is you want to diversify. You know, you want to take this money and put it in the queues because the queues had just come out. The uh, the Nasdaq 100 in ETF that was like the first ETF too. This was like right. before anybody had heard of ETF. So I'm guessing he got a a big commission on selling that. Um, he said you want to buy the queues and then you want to pick three or four other companies. You don't want to put it all into Apple. You know, Apple's a shitty company, blah, 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 blah. So I sat there and I said, all right, well, here's what I want to do. I want to take some of it. I'll put it in the queues. Some of it, I'll put it into Palm. I don't know if you remember Palm Pilot, which, you know, went directly into the ground, I think, after I invested in it. <laughs> um, I, I, I told him I wanted to invest some in Sun Microsystems because Java was just starting to gain prominence. And okay. I knew about Java. I knew what it was being a bit of a computer nerd. Um, and Motorola, because I wanted to, I knew Motorola was making the processors for Apple computers at the time. Um, and so I thought maybe that would be kind of a way I could get in without really getting in. And, uh, and then from there, you know, I watched, I think two of those investments go down. Um, and I don't know what happened to the rest of them. Uh, at some point I assumed I, I cashed out from that account probably within a couple of years. Um, but I, of course, over the you know succeeding 20 years, watch Apple go from $7 a share to splitting twice or whatever it did to you know now being at $232 a share. Um, I would have turned $1,700 into something like a half a million dollars or three quarters of a million dollars if I just put it there and forgotten about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was how I started learning about the market. And it was something that always kind of like, piqued my interest. I actually went to college as an English major. I actually went as a computer science major, then I switched to English. Um, I was always a very good writer, uh, always enjoyed like investigative style research. Um, So I kind of backed into the world of finance through through the world of journalism, I guess. Um, You know, I have a master's degree, which is in organizational leadership, which is similar to similar to like an MBA light, I guess you would call it like a diet MBA. Okay. Um, and I have a master certification through Cornell for hospitality management. So I picked up some finance stuff through that also. Um, but my, my interest in the market was always kind of a hobby. And I learned over the course of the, you know, the next 10 years from age 18 to 28 about all different you know, types of instruments to trade and all different things involving the market by losing money. I would open an account. I would fund it. I would try to trade Forex. I would get my head stomped in. I would open another account. I would try to trade futures. I, you know, I had no clue about, you know, margin requirements and lot size, and, you know, what delivery of these contracts, right? I didn't know anything about it. You know, I would open another account, boom, three weeks later, just get my ball stomped in completely. Um, and I just did that over and over and over till eventually I went to go work for a startup company in, I think, 2012 or 2013. I can't remember the date. Um, and I helped implement an internal uh, investor relations program at a startup company, company that I was actually invested in prior. Um, and from there, I started to get a lot more exposure as to the inner workings of a public company. So I spent hours and hours and hours with, you know, the CFO, the securities attorneys, 
um, all of the bits and pieces you would need to be a publicly reporting SEC filer um, and help them implement, you know, their first set of quarterly conference calls, um, help set up their annual general meetings and stuff like that. So procedurally started to learn a lot uh, through that process. Um, and then really from there, once I kind of got a little bit of a foundation as to how equities kind of worked, I would say that my learning curve has kind of has kind of accelerated a little bit probably over the last six years. If I mean, if you look at stuff I was writing six years ago, it's very different than what I'm writing now. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, I went to Wharton. I took some more, you know, executive education classes on accounting and finance, trying to really, you know, my problem was I was always very good. I was always a good writer. I was always good at doing investigative style research, but I didn't really understand the financial side of the business too much. So spent the last few years trying to shore that up. And to be honest with you, I'm still learning. So, uh, you know, in terms of my background, I'd say that's pretty much all the pertinent details, unless there's something major that I left out that you think I should talk about. Yeah, I mean, nothing comes to mind. And certainly that that learning aspect of it definitely hits home, uh, kind of two anecdotal uh, pieces from from my history, you know, Um, you're talking about learning through failing. I mean, that was me uh, beginning to trade options, you know, not so long ago. Um, not necessarily making bad calls, but just it's, it's, it's difficult. Like you're saying with Forex, you can be right and you can still lose money, you know? Um, well, and it's, it's a, to me, look, you know, losses that I took while learning, um, 10 years ago, um, were small in size to the potential losses I could be taking now. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm happy to have done it when I was only investing with, you know, to what to me, relatively to me, was a was a smaller sum of money. Um, and I I'm really happy that that's the way that I learned. I'm happy that I learned from experience and that I didn't learn from a book. I didn't learn from, you know, a, a mentor or somebody that had a system or, you know, there's so much bullshit out there when it comes to like financial education and financial literacy, everybody's got a book, everybody's got a system, everybody's got a, you know, a technical analysis program. You know, there's so much horse shit out there that I'm really glad that I learned that way because it's what has shaped my outlook on the markets in general. And it's what shaped my outlook on economic policy in general and monetary policy in general. Um, And I think that's kind of, one of the things that has contributed to my opinion being an outlier on many things. Um, I'm not, I'm not an outlier because I want to be, I'm an outlier because these are the conclusions that I've arrived at on my own. So it feels good to not come out of a university economics program and be thinking the same thing as the certified financial planner that's sitting next to me talking about laddering CDs you know, like mm-hmm. yeah. it, it's, it feels it feels good to kind of be looking at it from a different angle. And to be frank with you, I think over the last couple of years, you know, I just started this podcast this year that I didn't think was going to do well. And it seems to have garnered some interest. And certainly I've gotten a couple of followers on Twitter and such. I think that's part of what what attracts people to listen to my perspective, because they're not always going to agree with it. 
I mean, I don't even agree with myself sometimes. <laughs> but but yeah. at least they know that they're hearing something that is honest in the sense that it's actually how I feel. Um, and oftentimes is outside the spectrum of what you're going to get, you know, on the financial news networks. Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I think the, the, the brightest minds out there in the markets, whatever market we're talking about, are the people that can synthesize it all, you know, to, to some extent, it's impossible to completely put everything together, but to not just be a system, follow a system in, in the stock markets and just follow technicals or follow just the financials or something. You have to be looking at things like the economy as a whole, monetary policy and, 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 and currencies and all these other markets that you have to follow. You know, actually, another interesting story um, that, that I was going to say is uh, you're talking about in, investing funds from, from your high school graduation. I actually did the same thing. Um, this was five years ago because I'm, I'm considerably younger than you are. Um, this was back in 2013. Uh, about a thousand dollars for my, you know, grad party or whatever, and and uh, um, I, it was kind of interesting. You were talking about investing in Motorola. Actually, one of the companies I invested in for a while was actually Qualcomm, which is the uh, they make the processors for for Samsung phones. Which is kind of interesting. Okay. But, um, but uh, I just remember, you know, I, I was in the market for a while, and then I, I kind of stepped out for a while because I had other things going on. But um, one of the uh, one of the hottest companies back then during 2013 was a uh, Tesla, which is actually going to come up later in this conversation, um, back when it was, you know, just topping a hundred dollars and, and, you know, as volatile as ever, that hasn't really changed, but, um, sure. I'm sure some of my viewers would like us to get into some other topics. What do you think? Yeah, whatever you'd like, brother. I'll talk about anything. I'm an open book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, you, you put a video out not too long ago talking about the fed and, uh, well, their, their most recent FOMC meeting and they, we all know they raise interest rates. Jerome Powell basically said we're staying the course, we're we're going to tighten till well until you know as, as long as you know he's following that two percent inflation target and whatnot. Um, you know you don't have to so much talk about the the market reaction to just that uh, single um, I guess market event or that single uh, meeting. Uh, but could you give give my viewers a bit of a perspective on on this this whole Fed tightening cycle as a whole um, and and where do you see it ultimately heading? Well, I think that it's going to prove to be too little too late. Um, I think it's a lovely thought for them to chime in now 10 years into a bull market and say, oh, you know, we haven't been raising rates. Maybe we should maybe we should raise rates here. You know, uh, I think in the way that they measure prosperity, which is directly tied to where the S&P is at or where the S&P futures are at or whatever indicator they're watching. Um, you know, I think any way that they look at it, the last decade has been very prosperous by their terms. <clears throat> of course, I don't actually believe that we've had a substantial recovery the way that everybody thinks that we have. Um, and we could talk about that some other time. But um, for the Fed to be measuring the economy the way that they do, which is, you know, by looking at jobs, by looking at this CPI number that they come up with, by looking at how the stock market's performing, they should have gotten to it a long time ago. They should have gotten to it five years ago instead of, you know, just getting to it now. And what we're going to see is this pattern that we've been seeing, which is interest make uh, interest rates making lower lows and lower highs. So if you look at a chart of interest rates since the 80s, you know, when they famously spiked much, much higher, um, what we've seen since then is over the course of the long term, 
a policy that has resulted in lower rates uh, as we move forward uh, when they're low and lower rates as the Fed goes to bring them back up again. So, you know, during the last cycle that was similar to this, the rates may have risen to, you know, whatever it was, 5% after that cycle. At this point, we're probably only going to be able to get rates up to 3.5%, um, I would say would be probably the, the very top of, I'm guessing, where they would be able to bring rates to. Um, because the what it's going to do in terms of grinding the economy to a halt, um, I think will become more and more profound over the next couple of quarters. The amount of debt outstanding right now as a result of this quote-unquote recovery that we've had um, is astronomical. And most debt, whether you're talking about student loan debt or you're talking about subprime auto debt or mortgage debt or consumer credit debt, most of these debt levels are at or above where they were in 2008. Um, And so as the debt continues to grow and we continue to hike rates, even if it's these paltry little 25 basis point hikes and hikes, the aftershocks will soon they're occurring right now, I think, under the surface. I don't think we've seen the worst of it. Uh, I think we're in the midst of seeing it. I think, you know, these things will take several quarters to play out. But you can expect, in my opinion, all types of delinquencies, bankruptcies uh, to start ticking up again. Um, and we're going to eventually reach another point where, you know, money will start to come out of the market, um, you know, corporations that have debt will start to see their interest expense tick higher, which will negatively affect their bottom lines. Consumers will have less discretionary money to spend because the extra money that they're putting into their mortgage, putting onto their credit card bills, putting into anything that's got a floating rate or a variable rate um, is money they're not going to be able to spend, you know, at Nordstrom's or wherever the hell they would be spending it (laughs) otherwise. Um, So I don't think we're that far off from seeing uh, a profound effect from this. I think the Fed could have done this years ago. And we, look, I mean, you could say this going all the way back to the 90s or the early 2000s. I mean, this policy of quantitative easing is just putting one Band-Aid on top of another Band-Aid on top of another Band-Aid without fixing the underlying problem. The underlying problem is the way that we think about monetary policy. I mean, we think spending and taking on more debt is a great idea. And, you know, interest rates are not set up to reward anybody for saving. So we have this this country now that has accrued this enormous national debt that continues to rise. And we're spending from this guy's got a goddamn leaf blower next to me. Can you hear that thing? I mean, it's just unbelievable. I go outside to take a little walk. (laughs) Do you want to buy a pair? And this guy, I swear to God, like somebody tipped him off. He's following me with this fucking leaf blower. Like I'm trying to walk around. I'm trying to walk around out here just to get away from him. And this guy, and the thing's got like it sounds like it's got a goddamn airplane engine on it. Hang on, let me just move around the corner. <laughs> let me just move around the corner here. Anyway, so the idea of spending from, uh, you know, deficit spending is a stupid idea. It, it goes against all economic common sense but it's the idea that we've decided to implement it's the idea that we've been defending not only through what we say and what we teach in our universities but through how we have acted um we're sticking by it and so as i said one band-aid after another after another 
And what happens is every time we put a new Band-Aid on, the bubble gets a little bit bigger. Pretty soon, we're going to get to an inflection point. And at that point is when, you know, guys that are widely considered to be perma-bears or, you know, doomsday-sayers, I just call them people with fucking common sense. I think that's what they are. They'll argue that sovereign debt will become an issue at some point or the currency will get away from us. And it's not that insane of an idea. It really isn't because if you think about all the variables, you know, you think of the economy as a – what's a good analogy? You think of the economy as like, um, you know, the, the top of a guitar amplifier with like – 15 different dials on it, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that a free market economy is supposed to work is when demand picks up or when supply picks up or uh, when one of the dials turns, one of these variables turns, the other ones kind of turn to adjust for it. So maybe the gain on the guitar goes up, but then the volume lowers so that it's a more distorted sound, but it's not as loud and it doesn't blow your ears out. This is a poor analogy, but just stick with me. <laughs> Generally, what happens in a free market is once one of these variables adjusts, the other ones adjust accordingly. So this is why, like interest rates, for example, in a free market, they set themselves because they're a price that is uh, the result of how much demand there is to borrow and how much supply there is to lend. And then the interest rates just represent a price. So if there's plenty of capital to lend out and uh, lenders want to entice borrowers, they'll lower rates. And if there's a significant amount of demand to borrow and there's less capital, then they'll hike the price up. They'll hike up interest rates. So the cost of capital is higher. But what happens is when the Fed goes in and starts to adjust one of these dials on its own, and it holds the one knob at 3%. And as supply and demand shift you know, elsewhere, and these other variables that are still kind of left up to the market start to shift a little bit, but the Fed won't let its knob adjust, something has to give. One of the other dials is going to twist so far that it's going to fall off. And that's where people think <clears> – <throat> that's why people think that sovereign debt will be a problem or that hyperinflation will be a problem because – If the Fed is holding this dial at 3% and they won't let it go any higher, right, they won't let it adjust according to everything else that's going on in the economy, they're just going to assume that one of the other dials is going to see such an immense amount of pressure that it's going to, you know, it's going to blow up or it's going to spark or it's going to fly off or it's going to turn to 11. Um, And that's a really kind of basic analogy of why I believe hyperinflation or a sovereign debt crisis or something of that nature isn't as ridiculous of an idea as it is when it, you know people on television ridicule it. So sorry, that was a very long-winded answer, but no, it's it's fine. Um, I, I guess the next natural question is is you know where does it blow up? You know, back in in two thousand seven, you know, with with the subprime mortgage crisis and the whole housing market blowing up. You know, I think some people erroneously believe that. That is like the the sole cause of the recession that it was just a subprime um, bubble popping, um, or or that they point to to uh, irresponsible um, lack of regulation or irresponsible um, right. bankers and whatnot. When in reality, you know, all of that I think is is just merely a function of you know interest rate policy and, and monetary policy and whatnot. 
Um, it's well, you know, it was the assumption to. So first off, you can talk about how the Fed kind of created the problem to begin with, but you also have to think about the fact that these bankers are not going to go out there and be as aggressive as they were with these no doc loans and with all the nefarious things that took place leading up to the mortgage crisis. You can feel like the Fed was going to bail them out. I mean, it just, it would not have been as perverse. It would not have been as aggressive. Um, And I think many of the banks thought, you know, while that was happening and still think to this day that they're untouchable and that the Fed will will bail them out if necessary. And I just think if, if they're not conditioned to have that attitude and the environmental factors don't have them thinking that, uh, then I think 2007 plays out very differently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the, that's a classic. What is it? Uh, privatization of profits, socialization of losses. That that if you exactly it, yeah, if you remove the yep. Fed, if you remove exactly. the government from the equation, it, it doesn't play out that way. So you know, this time around, 2018, 19, 2020, whatever it is, um, you know, where do you kind of seeing it, it blow up first? And, and I know that that can be a very difficult question because. There's a lot of different sure. areas, and 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 you know there there were a few people I think that that accurately predicted just how big of an issue the subprime crisis eventually ended up being. Um, but I guess you know what what what's some insight that you can offer into that? As to where you know I think the next crisis will come from is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah, basically. Well, it all depends. To be honest with you, <laughs> you have to think about what the spark that will light the match will be. Right. It could, you know, you look at something like subprime auto debt right now, which has been a sad, sad state of affairs for the last couple of years. But there hasn't been any type of catalyst or any type of indication that it's on the verge of blowing up. As a matter of fact, I've read some stories and I've looked at some data, you know, that show delinquencies rising, that show bankruptcies rising, but it's still kind of forging forward. Maybe it's on the back end of, you know, its credit cycle apex and has, you know, just a tiny bit, this guy with a fucking leaf blower again. Unbelievable. (laughs) Hang on. I'm just going to go inside. This is crazy. I've never seen anything like this. This guy, it's like he's using GPS technology to follow me around where I'm walking. It's just fascinating. And I so much prefer to do these things walking around outside because it's a beautiful bed out. <laughs> Anyways, back to what I was saying. Um, you know, so I've seen indications that the subprime auto market is in deep trouble. And I think everybody else has seen them, too. Uh, it's just a question of at what point it's finally going to give. And what's that spark going to be that lights the match? I mean, for a while there over the last maybe eight months, 10 months, I thought maybe the crypto blow up might light the fuse elsewhere. Um, You know, you take, you know, tens of millions of people, many of whom who have taken out lines of credit to buy Bitcoin during that boom. I mean, you remember six months ago, every goddamn headline was about Bitcoin. And Bitcoin went from, you know, 3,000 to 20,000 in something like 12 months. And it was everywhere. Not only was it on every financial news network, you couldn't go to a family reunion or a Thanksgiving dinner without listening to some stupid, you know, second or third cousin trying to talk to you about Bitcoin and how they're going to get rich off it. One of my great friends went to a wedding, told me that, uh, you know, he spent the whole wedding sitting next to his 
uh, like brother-in-law or somebody who's a apprentice plumber talking to him about how he was going to get rich off of Bitcoin. I mean, we got to some real euphoria. Um, I just don't think the size of that bubble was large enough to be, you know, the catalyst that sets off the, the big, the big problem. And I think now too, I mean, you think about this, man, kids that were 15 years old when this, uh, when this bull market started are now out of college and working for the major financial firms. So there's a lot of people that are young on the street that have never even seen a recession before. I mean, they don't even know what it entails. And I think these last 10 years have conditioned people to be so steadfast and so trustworthy of the market that I think it's going to take something relatively jarring to set off the next major issue. And I don't know, again, if it'll be, you know, probably won't be housing since that sector just went uh, and that's kind of, I guess Ray Dalio would call that one of the 30-year cycle uh, uh, long-term debt cycle problems. So I don't think it'll be housing again. Um, I think the next recession will be on an absolute basis relatively smaller than the housing crisis, which was a major systemic you know, shit burger. I think the next one will be more of a standard recession on an absolute basis in, in you know, normalized kind of size comparison. Um, that doesn't mean that it's not going to be big, though. I think that uh, dollar-wise, um, you know, it may wind up getting to be maybe the size of half the housing crisis or a quarter of the housing crisis. And maybe it's, maybe it's a consumer debt problem. Certainly, I think having a trillion five in outstanding student loan debt that was issued for, you know, look, everybody that I know has taken on student loan debt, regardless of whether or not they're attending a university or a college. People took on student loan debt and they used it to pay their rent. People took on student loan debt and they used it to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> People used student loan debt to, uh, you know, their, their payments not to buy books, but to go to the bar. I mean, I'm not saying that I've been guilty of that at some point in my life, but but the point is, you know, we have a trillion five in debt outstanding in student loans that there really doesn't seem to be any plan for paying back. It doesn't look like there's going to be a point where any of that's going to get paid or a good majority of it's going to get paid back. And that's the kind of debt that won't come off your credit if you file for bankruptcy. So I think that's really dangerous. And that's, that's a big number, a trillion five. Um, you know, you read these horrible stories about people that have close to a million dollars in student loan debt. I was reading one on Zero Hedge like probably six months ago or a year ago that was, uh, you know, somebody had went to dental school and had accrued something like a million dollars in student loan debt. And he's paying back, you know, $1,000 a month or something. So, I think we have a huge student loan debt problem. We have a huge consumer credit problem. I think this little industry of personal lending or P2P lending now that, that has come out, which is like your SoFi and your lending club, mm -hmm. they've kind of filled the gap between the lowest end personal loans that you can get at a bank and people that normally wouldn't be able to get a loan at all. Um, they've kind of tucked themselves in that part of the uh, socioeconomic credit structure, if you want to call it. Um, I think those are going to be dangerous. I think those will all probably blow up uh, eventually. Um, and they're, of course, 
securitizing their loans and selling them also. Uh, so, you know, it might be another five years. It might be another 10 years. And the next, the next pullback might not be the big one. It might not be the currency crisis. It might not be the, uh, the sovereign debt crisis, but we will have a recession. And I think how we act on it and how proactive the Fed chooses to be will predicate exactly the speed with which we run into the really big problem. So if the Fed yeah. comes out and they're aggressive and they do QE4 and they print a shitload of money again and, and they come at it, you know, like, well, we can't have one day of a recession. We can't have one day of the stock market coming down and they go after it aggressively. All that's going to do is speed up the amount of time it takes for us to get to a much larger problem. Um, if the Fed is more measured and they say, all right, well, we're having a little recession, but we don't think it's prudent to lower rates here or whatever, we might start to have a little bit of an actual uh, an actual economic correction, not just a bubble deflation, but uh, an actual little bit of a, you know, like many people have said, my friend, if we had done what we were supposed to do in 2008 and let the banks fail that were supposed to fail and let the shit hit the fan, Today, me and you would be having a totally different conversation. It would have sucked back then. There would have been a lot of austerity. It would have been an ugly situation. I don't think it would have been chaos. I don't think it would have been, you know, famine and plague and pestilence. But it would have been uncomfortable. Our elected officials would probably uh, would have been uncomfortable for a while, which I actually would have liked to have seen. Um, but they took the easy way out. So if, if we hadn't done that, me and you would now would probably be talking about being in the midst of a much longer term actual recovery, uh, you know, a productivity, uh, excuse me, a productivity based recovery, a recovery where we're, uh, you know, not acting from a position of a deficit, but from a position of a surplus where we're paying down our, our national debt. We're trying to stop being a debtor nation. Um, we could be working towards something really good, but we're not we're flying into the future and fed chairs are swapping out one at a time, just hoping that they're not the one that's standing at the podium when the <laughs> whole thing goes tits up, which is, you know, going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with what you're saying there about, you know, how they acted. And, and I mean, you're right. I mean, we, we do have an economy today that is, is it's built on on the back of of deficit spending on 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 debt you know it at its core it's consumption but but a lot of that consumption the extra consumption that we need to to keep the economy going it, it comes from debt and and if you remove that from the equation it's no we we wouldn't have the recovery that we have well, today and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy you know like then then we have to keep it going so we have to take on more debt it's like you know like an old fucking drunk at a craps table somewhere you know like oh just give me another 100 dollars like i can make it all back this time <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and then we run into you know the the uh, famous you know Minsky moment where more and more debt actually ceases to to create more economic growth and actually is is detrimental over the short term, uh, not just the long term. You know, when when you're talking there about different bubbles in the economy, uh, especially you know consumer debt bubbles, I noticed that you left out um, a, a large one and not at the consumer level. The you know the corporate debt that that we have in the United oh States. Oh my God, and, yeah. <laughs> and 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 you know this kind of you know brings us to a very important topic that I think for you, something very near and dear to your heart is uh, maybe the one company that really epitomizes what the stock market and how corporations have performed, how they've behaved in this quote unquote recovery. And that's Tesla. I mean, Tesla is like the, the poster child of this, uh, 
universe where where value 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 valuations and and fundamentals no longer matter um so i was wondering if you can kind of talk about that and and you know I, i've talked about it in the past on my channel we we're talking about this earlier and and you know a lot of my viewers will, will say you know uh, musk is a genius he's on a different level he's his his humor oh, he's on a different of... level all right <laughs> um yeah and i mean it's it's it, it's crazy i mean to think that tesla right now trading what around 300 dollars a market cap of what like around 50 billion you know comparable sure. to that of like ford you know i i, I live in minnesota and so I'm, I'm not living in southern california or something so i don't see a ton of teslas <laughs> around here but you know even new teslas um, handful compared to, to, you know, hundreds of Fords or, or Chevys or whatever, uh, you know, car company. Um, I guess educate my viewers, you know, five minutes or whatever on, on kind of the, the real fundamentals for Tesla right now and, and kind of their situation going forward. Well, look, I think that you raise a good broader point, which is just debt at a corporate level, right? And, and I trust that you'll be putting a disclaimer on this podcast that it's not investment advice. Absolutely. And that I, you know, I don't hold any licenses and I'm not a registered investment advisor. I mean, we're just shooting the shit there. So I'll say that now, even if you're not going to do that. Um, but when you look at debt, just from a corporate level, not just at Tesla, but you look at it across the market, you look at it across all public companies. I mean, there isn't a major corporation out there that doesn't have a relatively significant amount of debt on their balance sheet. Some companies are more levered than others. Uh, some companies are responsibly levered. There's very few companies that are not levered at all that don't have any debt. But for the most part, you know, if you go through the S&P 500 and you start to look at, you know, all the companies that make up the index, a majority of them are going to have some debt on their balance sheet. And again, it'll be somewhere between being responsibly levered and being ridiculously levered. Um, many companies, what they've been doing since the cost of debt has been so cheap over the last 10 years is they've been taking on their debt and they've been using it to buy back stock while pushing back their maturities. I mean, Domino is a great example of this. The company I was just watching, you know, did a recap a couple of years ago. They've been buying back their stock at 35 or 40 times earnings. The stock's gone from like seven to like 240 over the course of the last 10 years or something. I mean, and we're talking about Domino's Pizza here. And, and to top off the euphoria, you got Jim Cramer on television telling everybody that, no, 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 it's not a pizza company. Like, you're an asshole if you think it's a pizza company. I look at it as a technology company. You know, and that's the that pretty much epitomizes the mindset that we're in right now. This guy is on television, and he knows what he's talking about. He has to. I mean, the guy's... He's got chops, right? He's been a fund manager for decades. He knows what he's doing, and he knows the game that the Fed plays, and he knows the kind of environment that we're in. You know, and instead of going on TV saying, here's why this doesn't make sense, he tries to tell people at home that this is a, you know, this is a technology company, which everybody, you and me and your listeners, you don't have to have a PhD to understand this one. Everybody knows that Domino's Pizza is a pizza company. That's why it's called Domino's Pizza and not Domino's fucking Software Incorporated. So that's the kind of environment that we're in. And Tesla is a perfect example. And I just said this on, what was I talking yesterday? Talking to somebody yesterday. I was talking to Yahoo Finance, right? And one of the points that I made to them was everybody's valuing Tesla like it's a technology company, but it's not. It's a car company. 
you know, so it's got this valuation as if it's some type of software as a service company, like they're getting some type of recurring revenue stream at 90% margins or something ridiculous, you know, mm-hmm. when they're not, they're just making fucking cars. Like that's all they're doing. And, and you can take all the other reasons to be short this company out of the equation, the irresponsible solar city acquisition, the inability to fulfill numerous promises, take all these things out of the equation. Let's just say they're executing perfectly. And every car that rolls off the line is perfectly done, which we know it isn't. And every, you know, that they're producing 90% uh, of vehicles uh, that don't need to be reworked, which we know is almost the inverse of what it's been reported (laughs) that they've been doing. But let's assume all things being equal, right? They're a car company. I mean, what do car companies trade for? They trade at six, seven times, eight times earnings, maybe sometimes 10, 12 times earnings. Why? Because it's a super capital intensive industry with disgustingly and like pornographically low margins. It is an extremely difficult industry to make money in. And that's why these companies that have been around for centuries, like Ford and General Motors, et cetera, have all spent as much time and as much R&D necessary to develop the best practices in the industry. If you don't think that the evolution of the car industry and the natural selection that has taken place over the last hundred years in manufacturing in the car industry has brought General Motors and Ford to the top of the echelon in terms of the most productive and most efficient way to make things, then, you know, you're just thinking about it completely incorrectly. So to think that Tesla is going to come in and rewrite somehow the best practices in the industry, and they're going to, oh, get away from the dealership model because it doesn't make sense. Like the dealership model is a product of the free market. It's there for a reason because it allows, you know, the company's inventory float to be significantly larger so that you're not worried about putting 24 cars on a truck every time somebody makes an order and then having that truck make stops around the United States or whatever (laughs) asinine delivery logistics program these guys have in place. So for him to come out and say, we're going to redo production and we're going to make it better than it ever was. And then, you know, next thing you know, they're, they're building shit in a tent. And then for him to come out and say, Oh, we're going to do away with the delivery model. And then next thing you know, People aren't getting their cars. You got stories online and informs people cutting the company checks, missing delivery dates, saying the car's showing up with a bumper falling off and shit like that. And then on top of all of that, on top of their inability to even compete with the best practices in the industry, the market for some reason ascribes this insane valuation to this company, which is a highly levered company is not consistently cash flow positive, is not consistently profitable, and is carrying a ton of debt and needs to raise more money to finance itself. And here we are in this interest rate environment where 25 basis points is a time, you know, as much as it's going to give Steve Leisman a nervous breakdown, rates are still going up a little bit at a time. And, you know, every 20 basis points is a couple more million dollars or whatever it is in interest expense for this company. So, they are they they will make they're a great poster child for this ridiculous thinking that we have now with the market in general. They're a great poster child for companies that have, in my opinion, an irresponsible amount of leverage. Um, and it should make for an interesting case study someday, regardless of how it pans out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have to say, you know, I I've I, I've heard of Tesla for a long time. You know, they they really kind of 
became you know popular around what 2012 13 somewhere around there um that's right. when they kind of went mainstream uh, but i gotta say you know on, on on my channel or whatever i'm kind of i feel like i'm kind of coming to this game a little bit late people have been talking about the dumpster fire of a company that they are the fundamentals and whatnot um for years now um so right. so what i mean what does the next year look like for tesla i mean we, we don't need to get into the weeds too much about well it really um, the, it, it, it all depends right it depends on a lot of things. Depends on what the demand looks like going forward. It depends on what the macro environment looks like going forward. I mean, if next year at this time the macroeconomic, you know, sentiment is exactly the same as what it is now, where everything is kind of euphoric and nobody really cares, like they said, whose line is it anyway, right? The the points don't matter. If we're in that same kind of macroeconomic sentiment, there's nothing that may prevent this company from kicking the can down the road for a couple more years. If they can go out and they can sell convertible preferreds or something and they can raise a couple billion dollars, I mean, I don't know what they would have to do to raise capital now or if they can even raise capital now. Uh, Any paper that they issue is going to be junk rated. Um, Any equity that they issue, my guess, would have to come at a discounter with some some kickers, um, which is why convertible preferreds probably make the most sense or some type of gnarly convertible debt. So it depends on that. It depends on what the demand for the model three looks like. I mean, if they've just gone through and molested their entire backlog for the model three over this past quarter, trying to get their delivery number up and trying to eke out a profit, um, and demand is kind of on a rolling basis falling off a little bit, well, they may find things to be extremely difficult in Q4 and Q1 and Q2 of next year. Um, you know, who knows? If the demand falls off, maybe they'll come out and they'll try to do a new product launch. Maybe they'll go out and they'll claim that they need to raise money for another gigafactory or to implement operations in Shanghai or to you know, make the model Y or to make the semi. What I think and what I tweeted yesterday was nobody, absolutely nobody should give this company a deposit for anything. And regulators shouldn't allow this company to take customer deposits until they deliver the $35,000 Model 3 as they promised. And when they pitched the $35,000 Model 3, that was used to... Uh, help them raise capital as a company and to help them take, interestingly enough, I think they said 420,000 customer deposits. I think that was the number that they used. Now, that's that's another story for another day, whether or not that's <laughs> legitimate or not. But let's assume that it is. Um, until those people that wanted a $35,000 car, the one that they were promised, get their vehicles, the company should not be allowed to take any more deposits. Um And if I'm regulators, that's something that I'm thinking about. Because to me, personally, if they go out and they say, all right, well, we're doing the Model Y now and put your deposits in before they deliver these $35,000 Model 3s, that starts to look, you know, it doesn't look good. It looks like you're using one customer's deposits to pay off another customer's deposits, or you can call that whatever you want, but it doesn't look good. Um, So that's what I think they should do. I think they shouldn't be allowed to take any new customer deposits at all until they deliver on what they promised. And all, yeah, you know, well, I mean, all this stuff is going to kind of come together 
in this giant mixing pot to, to see what's going to happen. And then, you know, you have the wild card in the CEO position himself. I mean, God only knows what this guy is going to do between now and next year. He could be living on Mars or he could have, you know, resigned and be working at a Nathan's hot dog stand somewhere. He's completely unpredictable. So it's very difficult to try and figure out where the company is going to be a year from now. Yeah. Well, I just think you look at all those things together and I think it's more likely than not that something goes wrong before then, but it might not. And I don't know if you saw this article this morning, too, about him threatening to quit as CEO. I haven't seen that one yet. If, so the New York Times reported yesterday that Musk had threatened to quit as the CEO of the company if the board did not reject the SEC's first settlement offer. Okay, so he didn't get his way. And the board was going to enter into a settlement that, for one reason or another, he didn't like. And instead of just talking to them about it or whatever, he threatened to quit. He threatened, you know, he went to the board and said, I'll leave or I'll resign on the spot. This is all according to New York Times. If they don't do what I want. So first off, that's not how a board of directors works. The board's not beholden to the CEO like that. So that tells us everything we need to know about the power dynamic at the company. Elon Musk runs the company, not the board of directors. That's what it says to me, number one. And number two, how many times can you be the guy on the basketball court whose team loses and, you know, you pick up your ball and say, I'm going home, or you call a foul that nobody agrees with, and when they they won't give you your foul shot, you say, fine, I'm just going to take my ball and I'm going to leave. How many times can you do that before you start pissing off regulators, pissing off the board of directors? There's a really toxic dynamic there. At least that's how it appears to me personally. Um, pretty gnarly stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've I, I heard some people say that, you know, that type of behavior from Musk, um, is that some sort of a prelude to him eventually leaving the company as sort of an exit strategy because he knows just how doomed the company is and, and he can get out while he can. I don't know what the whole situation would be with his equity in the company at that point. But, I mean, he does have a significant net worth and if he could uh kind of uh bail out before it it crashes i mean that uh, he he's 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 a uh he's a he's a smart guy in some ways you know i, I wouldn't put something like if that, that happens if you're suggesting that he's going to leave and sell his shares before the equity comes down i think i don't think that's possible i think he's in to some degree a long squeeze there because he starts to leave and the Elon Musk call option premium comes off the stock, and the stock's going to tank. And for him to start unloading shares, like you're suggesting, I mean, maybe he might, he might, you know, if he blows out his shares, he he might leave with a certain amount of money. But he's got a lot of these shares tied up as collateral for loans. True. Number one, so they're pledged at a certain price, which means that they get called at a certain price. That's number one. And number two, if he were to do something that daring and that bold, I think he would be subject to significant litigation and possible regulatory repercussions in the future um, as the whole thing, you know, eventually implodes, assuming that it imploded. I mean, it would really be a nasty end to a story that the media and basically everybody has made out to be that you know, he's the second coming. That would be a yeah. that would be a really gnarly, nasty way to end the whole story. Yeah, would surprise me. But yeah, I mean, and when you do put it that way, I mean, with with him kind of being the darling of the media, the second coming, um, why not go down with the company and, and be the martyr, 
right? Blame it on, right. on big oil, blame it on the SEC or, or whoever else, you know, uh, big, uh, the big three or whatever. Um, it's, right. it, it would be, it's, 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 um, and he would be, he would be fine either way. You know, it would be the difference between him being worth $20 billion or worth $1 billion. You know, like the guy's pretty much set for life regardless, yeah. you yeah. know, and, yeah. and, and even if that did happen, you know, there would be people out there that would be blaming, you know, people like me, short sellers who are for the most part, insignificant people. I mean, nobody has any clue who I am. I was serving beer for a living seven years ago, you know, and I got people writing me emails telling me like, you're the reason Tesla stock is crashing. I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? Like I'm 35 years old. I have a condo and I drive a Honda and I sit around and play Xbox. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not out there pulling some strings and some master, uh, you know, some master plan to bring down Tesla stock. I just happen to be raised in a household with a very low bullshit tolerance, and I'm calling a bit of it out when I see it. You know, but the, the, if even if that happened in the stock went under, there would be a group of people out there that, you know, would claim that there's some conspiracy, you know, some short seller conspiracy. Well, this happens all the time when shorts are right about a company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I got to say, it, it would it's entertaining, and it would be comedic if it wasn't so tragic for for a lot of people that i think are going to get burned by it whether it's just uh, disillusioned investors or tesla owners or, or those that have placed deposits i think there's gonna be a lot of you know if it if it does ultimately go under there's gonna be a lot of people that are hurt by it i think right but... or the next time i talk to you the stock could be at a thousand and they could be you know they could be burning more cash than they're burning today and the equity could still be, you know could be a 200 billion dollar company i mean it's just the market has no sense to it at all right now. So nothing should surprise you. And that's, you know, that's why all these fund managers, like these very smart people like David Einhorn, who, you know, is a guy that goes out and shorts bubbles and gets long value, which traditionally in a free market, of course, would be how you would want to invest. But this isn't a free market. This is a rigged system that is being, uh, you know, that unfortunately – has a good majority of its participants uh, under the impression that things can never go wrong or they won't go wrong or they're not going to go wrong. Um, we're there, man. Like We're at that spot that happens before a problem happens. The only question is how long this spot lasts before this shit hits the fan. And, you know, I don't care to take a prediction on that because I'm going to be wrong. Um, and it could happen tomorrow and it could happen 20 years from now. I mean, I just, I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, I got to run, Chris. Um, I got to say cool. it's been great having you on real quick before I go, uh, where can my viewers, uh, find your work? What's the best place? Oh, well, you can just put it in the podcast description or whatever, if you'd like, but, um, and I don't really like to promote too much, but my, my Twitter handle is at, um, at QTR research. It stands for quote, the Raven research. Um, if you search for Quote the Raven or Quote the Raven podcast, um, anywhere on Google, whatever, you'll find me. You'll find some links that get to my stuff. So if you're interested enough, you'll find it. And uh, if not, uh, I'm glad that you listened anyways and uh, gave me the opportunity to yammer on for an hour. <laughs> well, absolutely. Thank you again for coming on and have yourself a great day. You got it, brother. Yeah, let's do it again sometime, all right? Sounds great. Thanks. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Yep.